um, our text tonight is the 13th chapter of the uh, book of Acts. Some of you are here for the first time on Sunday evening. We have a great time at First Baptist Church on Sunday night. Right, folks? Boy, listen to that enthusiasm. Boy, they're with it, aren't they? What we try to do on Sunday night is to follow the um, little outline that we have in the insert in the bulletin, and we just study God's Word. And we've been kind of making a little journey through the book of Acts, verse by verse, or chapter by chapter. And we're at the 13th chapter of the book of Acts. Sunday morning is a little different here. We have a kind of a three-point sermon and a poem. But Sunday night, it's, uh, it's uh, just studying from God's Word and trying to touch, you know, the, uh, the, procl- the exhortation and the teaching ministry of the church. And um, it's just been great, the tremendous response that we have on Sunday evening. That's my little commercial. Now I'm going to read chapter 13, just the first uh, 13 verses. Now there, there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Manion, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they had reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they also had John, John Mark, as their helper. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus. This guy's a demon-possessed man. Who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for thus his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze upon him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what was happening, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga, in Pamphylia, and John left them, defected, and returned to Jerusalem. Some believe that when you receive Christ, that um, you'll never have any more difficulties in life. There's a false teaching that needs to be um, uh, put aside and done away with and destroyed for good, I think. And that's the um, teaching that um, when you become a Christian, hard times are over. 
hard times may just be beginning when you become a Christian. I hope none of the counselors told these young people who came receiving Christ during the revival that now when you get back to school, everything's just going to be great and lovely. Everything may be terrible. Because when you become a Christian, it does not mean that hard times are over. It may be that hard times are just beginning. Oral Roberts says, something good is going to happen to you today. That may not be true. And Robert Schuller has built a crystal cathedral on the philosophy, on the kind of the uh, shallow optimism, what he calls possibility thinking. But it's just not true that when you become a Christian, everything's going to be easy. There is a kind of a shallow optimism we preach, and we need to preach the other side of that. You've heard of Murphy's Law, haven't you? Murphy's Law says that if anything can go wrong, it will. Now Walter Menninger, Menninger Clinic, has some variations of Murphy's Law. For example, he says, if things will go wrong at the worst possible time. I think that's probably true. And he said, if there is a possibility of several things going wrong, the one that will go wrong is the one that will do the most damage. <laughs> and then he says, if everything seems to be going well, you have obviously overlooked something. And one guy says, if you buy a suit of clothes with two pair of pants, you'll burn a hole in the jacket. Now that's what you call Murphy's Law. I'm not sure that we need to go that far, but I am sure that we need to tell the other side of the story, the realistic fact that when you become a Christian, you may encounter for the first time the most difficult opposition you have ever known. F.B. Meyer in his little book, Christ in You, said, If I am told that my journey is going to be hard, as I make my way to my destination, every jolt in the carriage will say that I'm on the right path. I'm here to tell you tonight that becoming a Christian means sometimes that your families will fail you and turn against you and you experience heartache like you've never known heartache before, and you encounter some of the hardest opposition you have ever encountered. That's the reality of it all. Now the 13th chapter of the book of Acts sets forth that proposition, and I want to I come at this from this angle, from this proposition that the realistic view of life is this, that when you become a Christian does not eliminate hard times. The Apostle Paul was a realist. He was an optimist to be sure. He lived in an optimistic hope. He talked about reaching that mark that was out before him. He talked about the glorious, victorious life in Jesus Christ. He was a hopeful optimist. But there was this kind of a realism that just emanated from his life and, from, and oozed out of the pores of his being. He was a realistic optimist, but realism was a part of his life. And now he begins the first missionary journey. This is the record of it in the 13th chapter of Acts. And he takes along some people with him on this missionary journey. One of these men 
is a young man by the name of John Mark. John Mark was not a realist. It was absent from his life. He was a, he was a, a dreamer. He was an idealist. And these two men are setting out together on this missionary journey. Now the 13th chapter of the book of Acts suggests that it was a good beginning. As a matter of fact, these men were called of God. They were called of God. And when a person feels that he is doing what God wants him to do, where God wants him to do it, he has a tremendous ability to withstand anything that comes in life. A missionary and his wife turned away from the grave of their little child. They had just buried their only child in a foreign land. They hadn't been there but a matter of months. They knew very few people. And they walked away from the grave of their little child to leave it in that foreign land. And they were devastated by their sorrow. And they looked out in black faces in that African country where they'd gone to serve. And they saw no one that they really knew and loved, loved them. And they went back to their little house and sat down and they held each other in their sorrow. And they asked each other this question, why would we stay here in all of this? And the answer came back to their heart, because God called us here. Theodore Elp has a book on the biogra- a biography of Elijah, this man who stood against Ahab in the, in the heat of the opposition that came to God's man in his time. And he stood up against this king. All alone he stood against him. And Theodore Epp says, once a man is satisfied that he is in the plan of God and he knows that the will of God is being worked out through him, that man is invincible. Now he's not infallible, but he's invincible and nothing can move him. And so Elijah stood before Ahab and said, I dare you, in essence, I dare you to ignore what God is saying through me. Put me to death if you will. I dare you to ignore what God has called me to do. So these men were called of God. And they had the support of a marvelous church. Verse 2 of 13, the 13th chapter says, After they fasted, who is the they? It's the church in Antioch. And remember, that it was in Antioch that the Christi, the disciples, the followers of Jesus were first called Christians because they reminded the people of this Nazarene, this Christ of God who had come. They were just like Jesus in Antioch. And they had this marvelous praying, teaching, doctrinal church as their support group. It wasn't that they were going out all alone. They were going with the blessing and the support of this marvelous church in Antioch. And the scripture says that the blessing of God was upon them in verse 4. The unmistakable evidence of the assurance that God was leading them. For the Holy Spirit sent them out and they began their journey without a hitch, without a delay, without a disappointment. Everything was going great. And they set sail for Cyprus. Now I need to tell you something about this little island of Cyprus and if you're following in the insert, the outline, Cyprus is the third largest island in the Mediterranean and in Paul's world it is what Hawaii is in our world. The word Cyprus means happy island. 
It was a kind of a Shangri-La. It was a place of, of celebration. It's where people dream to go. It's like going to Hawaii just as a vacation and everybody dreams one day to go there to that Shangri-La of beauty and rest and peace and excitement. And so as they set sail for Cyprus, Happy Island, they were going to the most beautiful island in the Mediterranean. It was an island where there was, that was rich in silver and copper mines. There was a kind of a free spirit, a spirit of celebration on the island of Cyprus. And I can just see Paul and Barnabas and John Mark as they sail without a hitch towards Cyprus. And I can hear their conversation, kind of like the Milwaukee brew, uh, beer commercial. Man, there ain't nothing better than this. I mean, we're sailing to happy island of Cyprus where everybody dreams to go. And we're going there because God has called us out and has sent us by the Holy Spirit and we have the blessing of the church upon us. There couldn't be anything better than this. And verse 5 says they came to Salamis. Archaeological digs have discovered that Salamis was a city that had at least 100,000 viaducts in it. There must have been a population of over 100,000 people. It was a prosperous and teeming metroplex. And they also went to the city of Paphos. It was the capital city of Cyprus, a hundred miles across the island, Salamis on one end and Paphos on the other, and everything's going great. You couldn't have it better than this, to be called of God, to be sent out by the Holy Spirit under the blessing of the church to Happy Island where everybody dreams to go. But being a Christian doesn't mean that the hard times will never come. As a matter of fact, if you'll look in verse 5, you'll begin to see the hint of the difficulty that was arising confronting these, these missionaries. The Scripture says in verse 5 that they preached in the synagogues of Salamis, plural synagogues. There must have been enough Jews in the city of Salamis for several places of worship. must have been a great host of Jews. And they preached there but there's no indication of any response. Do you notice that? Heretofore, as we've went, gone through the book of Acts, we have discovered that when they preached in the temple, 3,000 were saved and thousands were coming to Christ and there was an explosion of birth and new birth in the cities. But when they preached in the synagogues of Salamis, not a decision recorded. I think there is no record here of a decision because I think there were no decisions. I heard a missionary say not too long ago he preached 10 years to the American Indians in Arizona. He said the hardest thing that, that I had in the, my ministry there was to preach every Sunday morning and never see a response, not even a change of expression in their faces. Now I want you to get the picture. Well, here's, because here's John Mark, this idealist who has become a Christian and is joined with this exciting missionary, Paul and Barnabas, his friend. And he has an idea that becoming a Christian and involved in the mission work is always going to bring results. And he's there watching. Not a soul is saved. And they leave Salamis and they travel across the, the island of Cyprus. It's 150 miles across and they're going by foot and all the way they go they preach and they come to these little towns and villages and everywhere they preach the gospel and not a response. 
And they came to Paphos, the capital city of the island of Cyprus. And there, that great immoral city of gaiety and frivolity and luxury, they fought. What an opportunity to establish the mission, the mission of God here in this place. And they preached, and not a response. As a matter of fact, they encountered opposition. There was a man in the city. He was a skilled sorcerer. He was a magician. Now, let me say at this point, I don't know a whole lot about demonic possession, but I believe in it. And I know that the Apostle Paul in his day encountered it, and I know we encounter it. Sometimes we just don't know how to identify it. But here was a man, a magician by the name of Elymas the sorcerer, a skilled man, a man who was possessed of a demon, who had a demonic possession. And he called himself Bar-Jesus, and the word Bar is the word translated from the Greek son. He called himself the son of Jesus, the son of salvation, the son of deliverance. He was a member of the occult, and the occult always has an appeal to it. It appeals to the needs of people. And so here was this man with these magical powers, these demonic powers, who was claiming, you come to me and you'll be delivered. The occult has an attraction to it. And there was a man who was with him, of the proconsul, by the name of, by the name of Paulus, and the Scripture makes this little note, and nothing in the Scripture is there by accident. It says that he was a man of intelligence. It's always amazed me how that intelligent people can be caught up in the occult, but they do. I was just reading not too long ago about this great group of people who are involved in these demonic uh, practices and the practice of the occult out in the West, and the core group are attorneys and businessmen from huge corporations in the Midwest. It's amazing to me how the demonic, the, ma the magic, the occult have these tremendous powers over men. And, de and demons had come into his body and controlled it. Now watch this. Here was Mark. Mark was a young man who lived, in a, who lived a sheltered life. When we read through the book of Acts, we discovered that when the church was meeting uh, to pray for Simon Peter, they met in Mark's house. His mother was a devout Christian. And so all of his life, this young man had been brought up in a sheltered kind of an existence. And he had these idealistic concepts about the Christian faith. And all of a sudden, he's in this strange island where nobody's responding to the message. As a matter of fact, he encounters a demon-possessed man. And this Paulus of the proconsul says that to Paul and Barnabas, I want you to come here and preach the gospel. And opposition came. Opposition came from the magician. The scripture says that he opposed them, verse 8. If you ever like to watch baseball, you watch the Yankees play. It won't be long until you see this little guy with his mustache, little skinny guy, come bounding out of the, out of the uh, dugout, and he'll come racing across the field, and he gets right up in the umpire's face with his stomach stuck uh, out about like this, and he's just right nose to nose to the umpire's call. His name is Billy Martin, and they're just, they're just screaming at the top of their voice. When you read this in the Greek language, that's what you read. As the Apostle Paul tried to preach, here was this, 
demon-possessed man there. And he was right up in Paul's face opposing him. And there stands John Mark to the side. No mention of him. But can you imagine the hair standing on the top of his head as he watches all of this go on, this sheltered young man who had all these idealistic concepts of what, it ha- what happens when you become a Christian. And the Scripture says that Paul fixed his gaze upon the magician. That is, he took the offensive. He took the offensive. And the Apostle Paul said to him, he called him a devil. Um, There are a lot of people who in the name of religion who are knocking on your door from time to time, my friend, who are representatives of Satan himself. And you don't have to listen to them. In fact, you need to take the offensive, the offense. A friend of mine said he was going through the airport one day and one of these guys came up and he said, can I, put a, can I, can I pin a flower on your lapel? And he said, I won't receive one of your lapels because you represent the devil. You say that's hard? That's what Paul said. And you know when he said it? He said when he was filled with the Spirit, he fixed his gaze upon him and he said, you're of Satan himself. And he cast a spell on him. He brought blindness to the man. It says something about the power of the Christian faith. It says you and I have someone within us who is greater than he that is in the world. And we have the authority to claim that power and to use it. Now look at verse 13. Now Paul and his companions, notice the reversal here. Now this is significant. Because heretofore the leader of this group was Barnabas. And Barnabas was John Mark's uncle or relative. But all of a sudden now, Paul is the leader of the group. His name is mentioned first. Now get the picture. The proposition is that when you become a Christian, times may get difficult for you. Sent out by the Holy Spirit under the blessing of God, called of God to this marvelous task, sailing to Happy Island, the Shangri-La, where the message is going to be received and everybody is going to be saved getting there and finding absolutely no response and the most weird kind of opposition. And then all of a sudden he sees the preacher he's with make a man blind. And then he just takes over the group that his uncle was leading. And the verse says, verse 13 says, they put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. Now you won't know this by reading the King James but you read any Bible encyclopedia and, they'll tell, and it'll tell you that as they sailed around that part of the island, they came into the most treacherous waters in the Mediterranean, wild and treacherous sailing. And all along that sea coast as they traveled to Perga in Pamphylia, malaria was a common disease. So with your Bible in hand, I want you to flip to Galatians. I want to show you something interesting. This is kind of off the cuff and it's absolutely free. As a matter of fact, all of this is free. And it's chapter 4, verse 13. Because when Paul and Barnabas and John Mark set sail to Perga and Pamphylia, they were headed to the, 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 the cities of Galatia to preach 
where this epistle came to be. And notice what he says in verse 13. But you know that it was because of a body illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. Now, what he's saying to these Galatians is, the first time I came to the cities of Galatia and preached, I was sick. And there's some who write commentaries concerning the Apostle Paul who contend that the thorn in the flesh for the Apostle Paul was a reoccurrence of malaria that he contacted as he sailed along the coast where malaria was a prevalent disease. And so it's not wild to assume that John Mark and Paul and Barnabas are sailing in these treacherous waters and they're clinging to their life on these, on these waters in that little vessel. And all the time Paul is violently ill Here's John Mark, and he said, Hey, I didn't bargain for this. When I gave my life to Christ at nickels and dimes, I meant it to be that all the trouble would be over. God called me to salvation, and He called me to a plan and purpose, and I expect Him to bless my life. And we've been up and down the island of Cyprus, and not a soul was saved. And I trusted God to protect me. And right in the midst of the island of Cyprus, there was a man, the wildest looking man. My life was in danger. And then I set sail toward Perga, and we almost were shipwrecked. And malaria, disease, my friend Paul almost died. This is not what I bargained for. And he left the faith. Turn back and he quit. In another place, the Apostle Paul calls him a traitor. And so, my appeal to you tonight is this if you're thinking about giving your heart and life to Jesus Christ, I want to warn you that you're giving your life to Him, no strings attached. And it may be the toughest life you could ever live. But that may be what's appealing to some of you. Chrysostom said, For every one person that wants peace, there are ten who want drums, who want the challenge to lay down their life for Christ. Someone else said, the reason why nobody's being swept into the kingdom is because it costs nothing to be a part of the kingdom. I heard Jimmy Draper say, a lady came up to him, a, missionary, a, a, a refugee from Thailand, and she looked at him and said, Sir, how much, it, how much does it cost you to be a Christian? And I heard that out of the underground church in China, I heard about the underground church in China. In China, there are three laws, before it was opened up recently, there were three laws concerning religion. One, when you met, you couldn't meet in the same place more than once to worship. Two, no two people could meet together for worship more than once. In other words, if 
you were here with us tonight, nobody could meet in this group again like this group. In the same place, no two people could ever meet together again. You had to meet with somebody different. Number three, you couldn't publicize your meetings. The Red Guard is always watching for Christians who met for worship. The Red Guard was always looking. Now, Somebody that was always in the, in the underground church, there was always somebody who was willing to publicize, to, to get the meetings arranged. And they'd move about in the Red Square in secrecy, under the, under the uh, secrecy as the Red Guard watched. And they'd see, tonight you meet under the viaduct at seven o'clock and you'll meet with so-and-so and so-and-so. And tomorrow night you'll meet out in the building three doors down with so-and-so and so-and-so in your meeting time. Now everything was all right. They weren't meeting in the same place and not with the same people, but this one person, this representative was publicizing the meetings. And the Red Guard would always find them. Sometimes they could last for as long as 30 days, but the Red Guard would always find the representative of the underground church. When they found them, they'd take them out into Red Square and set them on fire, burn them to death. And the missionary in China was telling Jimmy Draper this story, and he kind of laughed, and he said, I bet it's hard to find representatives from the church. He said, oh no. Tears came in his eyes. He said, in Red China, it's the greatest privilege in life to be the representative. And we have waiting lists that are years long for people just waiting for the chance. I see two applications from this text. Get these and I'm through. The first application is this. There is no accomplishment without determination. You athletes know this. Bob Elliott has a little book called Too Soon to Quit. This is what he says about athletics. I think it can be applied across the board. Americans are too, so too soft. They don't have the discipline of the second half. They lack staying power. They're not willing to deny self that which the body craves. Men have no will to finish. Gentlemen, he said, life is not a 50-yard dash. It's a cross-country marathon. No accomplishment will ever come without determination. If you're going to follow Jesus, follow Him all the way. Livingston said, I'm, not, I'm determined not to stop until I've come to the end of my achieved purpose. I'm not going to quit. I saw two of these fine young men who were saved two weeks ago. They're such an inspiration to me. I told them so up in the halls. They were headed to their, their survival kit class. I said, you fellows are an inspiration, and I, I'm grateful for you, and I'm, I'm glad you're in there and hanging in there. They said, we're going to stick it out all the way. And they gripped my hand. It was a joy. It's a privilege to meet them. When I'm dead and gone, they'll still be going. Thank God for it. Second, 
There is no burden that's too heavy for Christ to carry. Now lest you think I've been a pessimist tonight to, to show the other side, let me hurry to say this is the most important thing I'll say. There's no burden too heavy for Christ to carry. And if you come up in hard times, you come up to difficulties, and you will, you just remember Christ can handle it. And you just remember that He'll shoulder that burden for you. Dorothy Brymeyer was sick four hours before she died. She had a cerebral hemorrhage and died. And she left a grieving husband and a little five-year-old daughter. John Brymeyer's friend said when he laid her to, to rest in the cemetery, come home with us tonight and stay with us for a while. You can't go back home for a little while. Stay with us until you can kind of get your wits back together. John Brymeyer said, I've got to go back and find my joy where I lost it. Right in the room where I lost it. And so he went back home, and that night he went to bed. He brought his little girl's bed in the room by his. And it was kind of a dark and stormy night as they went to bed, and dark. In the middle of the night, that little girl was crying. Her mother died. And she said, Daddy, it's so dark. Do you love me? Even though I cannot see your face, do you still love me? He got her out of her bed and put her in the bed with him and he put her on his chest. He felt the hot tears falling on his chest as he assured her that he loved her in the dark. And he talked quietly and lovingly until she went to sleep. And he laid her down beside him there and in the dark he lifted up his voice to God and said, Oh God, it is so dark. Do you love me even though it's too dark to see your face? Do you love me? He told his friends later, he said, I didn't see any flashing lights visibly, but a light illuminated my room and a presence more real than my own life assured me there was no night too dark. Would you bow your head? Heavenly Father, we're glad that it's not easy to be a Christian. Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease? while others fought to win the prize and sail through bloody seas. No, I must fight if I should gain. Increase my courage, Lord. Increase my courage, Lord. We're glad it's not easy to be a Christian because we want to share in the suffering of Christ and fill up His suffering. Be like Him in the world. Be willing to say, I'll take my stand regardless who takes it with me. 
I'll take my stand regardless of the opposition, the pain, the sickness, the storms. I'll take my stand and I'll not turn back. I pray for the courage of those today who halt and limp between two decisions. If God is God, follow Him. If Baal is Baal, then follow Him. Let that be our decision tonight. I pray for the courage to stand tonight to say, I give my life to Christ and I want to serve Him all the way to the end. I pray this in the name of Jesus for His sake. Now look here, would you? Our invitations tonight are three. The first invitation, they run along these lines and they're simultaneous. The first invitation is for you to come and give your life to Jesus Christ. Bonhoeffer says there's no such thing as cheap grace. Jesus says, come and die. Come and give your life to me. I want you to come tonight and give your life to Jesus Christ. Come and die. Die to the old life. Die to sin. Die to the old way. And live for God. The life that's real life. Get up out of your seat and come. And say, I want to give my heart and life to Jesus Christ. I want to invite Him into my life. Tim and Darius and... and uh, some of these will be here to counsel with you. Some of you want to come to make your decision to, to, to accept Christ. First time decision. This is the time for you. Second invitation is for you to come place your life in the church. This is the way God is going to rend this world. It's just like these who are here tonight. Who are going to scatter out after this service and witness in the streets who will be out in the marketplaces and in the schools this next week, the places of abode, and they'll be declaring their faith in Christ. Come and join us. Christ has made the church the instrument of redemption. Come rededicating yourself to Jesus. You've been a John Mark. You've turned back and you've quit. You've got a second chance. God is a God of the second half. Now, if God has spoken to your heart, you'll surely want to come on the very first word. It's best to start out from the first. It's easier to come if you'll just step out. As you stand, you stand coming. And coming to Christ, you'll do it while we stand right now. Come.